0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to the SCSPI inaugural podcast. Uh, this is Richard Hanania. I'm here today with George Howley. George, how are you doing? Very well. Thank you for having me. Yeah, great. Great for you to be here. So, we're going to do these periodically. We're going to shoot for once every two weeks. Um, we have a donors feed, which will be released immediately for people who are contributors or uh, or you know otherwise have helped out CSPI in some way, um, and then a little bit later we'll release a regular podcast for everybody else. This one I think we're gonna be talking about things that um, I, I you know they could be dated uh, very quickly. Uh, so because we're gonna be talking about the news, I think that we should um, yeah I think we'll get this one out relatively quickly. Uh, but from but for future podcast they may be out at a later date. Um, so today's, I guess I should say, by start by saying today is January eighth, twenty twenty one. There was a, a ruckus at the Capitol the other day, and you know we'll get to that. It relates to my work and George's work. So George, can you just introduce yourself? You know, give us your background and your academic career.
1: Sure, my name is George Hawley. I'm an associate professor at uh, the University of Alabama. I've, uh, I'm the author of six books with the seventh uh, under contract uh, just today, actually, um, and my work generally is around um, questions about ideology, uh, demography, of public opinion, um, and uh, religion and politics. So covered a, a lot of ground, but all sort of within similar themes.
0: Yeah, and you have six books, uh, and three of them are on the conservative movement in some way, right? That's right. And the I mean, the first one you wrote um, was uh, right wing critics of American conservatism. What year did that come out?
1: That uh, I wrote it in 2014, but because of the delays in uh, academic publishing, it wasn't actually available for purchase until early 2016. But the timing ended up working out all right because of the themes were were appropriate at the time. <laughs> yeah, when you started studying this stuff in 2014,
0: I mean, there was what there was the Tea Party was a, f- a few years in, it was a few years into it. But you really you you um, sort of profiled some characters that were out there. Some of them I'd heard of, and some of them not. Uh, can you give us sort of a broad lay of the land? What was what were the, who were the right wing critics of American conservatism, and what didn't they like about the movement?
1: Well, sure, I guess I should, uh, I mean, it's kind of a big question, but um, the justification for that project was that the conservative movement, the mainstream conservative movement that have, has you know dominated much of American politics for all of my life and all of your life, I was arguing was uh, becoming increasingly anachronistic, right? Um, you know, conservatism, as much as they like to say it represents permanent things or this very logical collection of philosophical principles really was kind of a, a product of the early Cold War period um, that was sort of surviving by the you know the 2010s based on essentially inertia and Reagan nostalgia. And I suggested that. You know something might be coming down the line that wouldn't just be sort of a minor variation on the conservatism that we've known but might totally reject one or more or all of the basic premises of the conservative movement that is the you know the the what we call fusionism of uh limited government intervention in the economy combined with uh, moral values or christian values however defined um, and then a strong foreign policy. However, to find that you know those things didn't necessarily have to have a logical connection. You could have one without the other, or you could have most a right. Countries they, with-
0: most countries, they don't. Right? It's uh, the the marriage between free markets and social conservatism. You can just look at the world to see that that's that's not natural.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, you could say that may- maybe that made a fair amount of sense in say the 1950s when sort of you know bourgeois values probably were dominant in corporate America. Um, art, is that the case today? I don't think so. I mean, sort of Hobby Lobby is considered, you know, an aberration, right, in sort of uh, when it comes to, you know, big corporations caring about uh, social issues at all. So anyway, the premise of that book was, you know, this movement is looking increasingly rickety. So I wanted to sort of profile all these different right-wing ideologies, right-wing as I define them, um, that might be coming down the pipeline that could, you know, challenge conservatism, as, as we understand it, as the dominant, uh, you know, opponent to mainstream liberalism. So I walked through, you know, various degrees of sort of secular conservatism, a conservatism that doesn't have any sort of religious foundation, um, what's called localism, so a, a skepticism about both big government and big business, Um, All the different varieties of libertarianism from sort of like a a low tax liberalism, all the way to sort of a Rothbardian right wing anarchism. And then, um, you know, paleo conservatism, which we generally associate with Pat Buchanan. And then on to the European right wing movements that you could reasonably call neo-fascist. And then, of course, uh, the extreme right sort of the white nationalist movement in the United States. and so just profiled all of these and suggested that, you know, if conservatism doesn't become more appealing, one or more of these might have an opening in, uh, in the near future. Yeah.
0: And you, this book came out in 2016. So, I mean, you nailed it. I mean, that was, that was good
1: timing. You saw something that was, that was real and it was out there. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, in some ways, I, I challenge my own thesis at this point, I feel like the last couple of years have suggested a point that I underestimated the yeah, state. Of power that's, I think that's
0: right. Yeah, I've been thinking the same thing. Go ahead. Yeah.
1: But um, in the sense that there would be new challengers that might have a genuine shot, I think that that was that was right. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, right after that book came out, I was offered the chance to write a book on the alt-right, which I considered kind of just an extended addendum to right-wing critics. I kind of consider them part of the same project because they were in such close proximity to each other. But that, uh, that was another book that uh, had fortuitous timing in that it actually came out the same week as the, uh, the, the Charlottesville event of 2017. So I, I, got to, <laughs> I had uh, good timing uh, twice in a row
0: yeah yeah um so I mean the the book i the the way I sort of um understand these critics of American conservatism from the right is that they're they're sort of purged, and you know you said this is not natural, this sort of three stools of strong national defense, uh free market economics and so uh, conservative social values. It, it took a lot of work to artificially just hold this thing together, right? It was Bill Buckley. Um, and National Review periodically purging people who didn't didn't toe the line in some way. And before the internet, the technology was such that, you know, you if you were the conservatives who were the ones talking to the Wall Street Journal editorial board and getting invited on Meet the Press. You know that was it there was such an advantage in sort of being the establishment conservative conservative movement and having access and also to the to the republican party it seemed like there was a lot more uh there was a it was sort of just much more difficult to challenge to challenge the, uh, these people and uh you know i, I like to uh, sort of think of these um these right-wing critics as sort of there were two something right there was something that disqualified them from being part of that mainstream conservative so they were either too racist they were too religious. I mean, you, you, it wasn't just the race, the, the the white racialists that you cover in your book. There's also um, uh, these like these uh, fundamentalist Christians who think the Christian right is too soft and you know wanted to stone homosexuals and all these other things. Uh, or you had people who were too libertarian who took this libertarian thing too seriously. Uh, people who you know too. Um, not excited enough about Israel, I guess that was a big focus of the purchase. It's not more, as much an ideological thing as just sort of a sort of a peculiar peculiarity of uh, the Buckley era um, American conservative movement. But in so 2016, so twenty sixteen comes along, and one of these things is dominant, and that's and that's the alt right. So, could you talk about your book and sort of what was happening at that time?
1: Sure. I mean, um, you know, when I wrote Right Wing Critics, I didn't, you know expect that you know the so-called alt right would be sort of the big story you know coming down the pipeline um so I, I can't claim any credit for any uh uh foreknowledge of that but then you know when it started to make waves you know mostly online almost exclusively online really uh becoming part of the conversation in 2015 And then, of course, sort of exploding an interest in 2016, mostly because Hillary Clinton in August of 2016 gave a speech in Reno dedicated entirely to the subject of the alt-right, basically trying to tie uh, the Trump campaign to white nationalists, which I think the strategy there was to try and uh, dampen down Trump's support among sort of more bourgeois, you know, nice, you know, Christian ladies who wouldn't want to support, uh, wouldn't want anything to do with that. I think that was sort of what the, the logic of that speech was. But anyway, that led to just a, an explosion of interest in the subject, positive and negative. And so it was sort of out of the, uh, it, there was no putting the genie back in the bottle at that point, it was going to be part of the conversation after that.
0: Yeah, and alt-right uh, is sort of ill-defined in most of you know most of the discourse. How did
1: you define it in the
0: book and how, how would you define it?
1: Um, Well, I mean, the term, you know, had it it evolved over time, even over the short period, sort of history moves very fast among internet subcultures. But I would argue that, you know, white nationalism was sort of a consistent theme throughout, even if there were periods, especially in, say, 2015 and early 2016, when it became a bit more ecumenical and sort of uh, a more broad-based term that some people might have used to describe the entire, uh, you know, Trump right-wing populist movement, but sort of the, the the core ideologues were definitely coming out of that particular radical right tradition.
0: Yeah. And like, well, you know, let's be a little more specific. They were basically, they were white nationalists, right? Were they, was it, they were just white nationalists with different attitudes, right? Sort of uh, internet savvy, not, you know, they had this sort of look and this sort of aesthetic, but mm-hmm. the, uh, the ideology was, was, not, was not new. Is, is that right?
1: I would say, no, it's not new because you, you can find, you know, if you look at the, you know, the white nationalist movement as it existed from World War II until today, basically everything you saw in the alt-right, you could see earlier versions of that in one figure or another, right? You know, in some ways, you know, looking at the alt-right might remind you of say uh, George Lincoln Rockwell of the American Nazi Party, for example, and sort of right. like the trollishness and theatricality, that sort of thing, in other ways might remind you of, of somebody like uh, Ben Claussen or William Pierce or um, some of these other, you know, extreme right individuals who sort of lived on the, on the margins of uh, uh, American ideological life for, for many decades.
0: Yeah, th- that's right. and They had a natural... I mean, there were there was there's a natural connection between them and sort of an organic connection between them and the conservative movement in the sense that a lot of the shift to the Republican Party in the 1960s and afterwards was race-based, right? There was a, a reaction to the civil rights movement. Um, there was a reaction to things like school busing and there were uh, affirmative action, PC in its earlier forms. It's morphed into something a little bit more uh, a little bit uh, more strident today, but it was it was always there, right? And the and the and the last. Uh, And and this was basically why, this was in part why uh, Republicans had won the white vote. I think every election since nineteen since nineteen sixty eight. I think is if I think if I'm if I'm correct. Um, And so this uh, so you know there's some there is a natural connection there between them and well conservatives. I mean conservatives will say you know it's not about you know because sometimes the just by coincidence the conservative view or the libertarian view and the and the white nationalist view do do uh, accord right so you could believe in border security for nationalist reasons you could for racist reasons you could believe in repealing anti-discrimination laws because you're uh, because you're racist and you just don't like certain people or you could believe you could be a principled libertarian right so there was sort of a logic to why these people are on the right. And they were part of the concern, you know, they were, maybe they were people who sort of supported the conservative movement and weren't pushed up to prominence, right. But there always sort of was the subtext of people who didn't like the, the racial changes from the 1960s, being a part of Republican Party, and having a voice in the Republican Party that sort of became uh, more prominent in 2016. Uh, a lot of leftists will say the subtext became the text in the Trump campaign. Previous generations were dog whistling and Trump
1: was just sort of saying these things out loud. Is, is that, does that make sense to you? No, I think that's fair. I mean, if we think about the rise of conservatism, I mean, there are, you know, principled, you know, non-identitarian reasons for, you know, believing in basic conservative precepts. And I actually think that a lot of sort of the first generation conservatives really weren't focused on sort of the racial angle. And when we think about some of like the, the marquee names of, you know, 1950s uh, conservative intelligentsia, like most of them were not particularly interested in, you know, preserving segregation in the South per se. I mean, uh, very, there were actually very few Southerners actually represented in the early conservative intellectual movement. But I, it would be disingenuous to say that, you know, they didn't see the writing on the wall and see that, you know, the future of the Republican Party which the conservative movement had tied itself to um, was contingent on uh, drawing in all these votes from the white South. Um, and so, we, you not know- the white we, South, the white, white ethnics who didn't like- Muslim. I should say white people in the South, not the white South, obviously. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that, yeah, that was uh, that's where the support came from. And then of course, um, another thing that people often forget is although the, you know, the religion was always a key component of, Uh, conservatism from the beginning, but what a lot of people forget is that of the first generation of intellectual conservatives, um, there weren't very many Protestants. It was an overwhelmingly Catholic movement, if we think about sort of the, uh, the early National Review types. And a lot of them, I think, didn't realize the huge amounts of uh, votes that the Republican Party would eventually get with the rise of the Christian right in the late 1970s. And sort of the, the tying in of that uh, Christian identity with the conservative identity that didn't, uh, didn't really start to, to come into being until quite a bit later.
0: Yeah. And uh, what is your, so, I mean, so they come along, I mean, so the alt-right sort of is this internet movement. They have a subculture for years uh, before Trump comes along. What's Trump's relationship to these people? Do you, do you think that, I mean, obviously the, the, you know, there's polling, you can look at, most Americans had never heard of the alt-right. That was probably true in 2016. That was true in 2016, probably still true today. Although Hillary popularized a little bit, I I don't think it's a, a sort of a term that, you know, people use in their daily lives. So they were never, you know, th- there were these instincts that people had that drew them to Trump, but most people were not, you know, followers of this movement. What, what, how do you characterize or think about the connection between Donald Trump and sort of these, these white nationalists alt-right and these other folks?
1: I mean, I think that, you know, there was a recognition among the Trump people that the uh, sort of the extreme right online, the racist right online, were sort of a, a useful, you know, set of volunteer internet shock troops on, on social media. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, there was a, I think that's why they were very slow to disavow it. I think they recognize that there was, you know, some, some real energy there that they could harness, but I think they always did want to maintain at least some degree of, you know, formal distance from it and a degree of plausible deniability. How much Trump himself ever really understood, uh, You know, I'm not I'm not quite sure because you know, he's obviously an extremely online person. Yeah. Yet most of his, you know, ideology, such as it is, seems to come from Fox News as opposed to um From from the internet.
0: Well, my impression of Trump is his views changes depend uh, where he gets his information from, and sort of his paradigm of how he views the world sort of comes from who he's listening to at the moment. So in two thousand sixteen, Fox News didn't like him when he when he started, Mm -hmm. and nobody in the Republican establishment liked him. Liked him and you know, because he had this throw, it's so funny, he had this throwaway line. It might've been just basically, you know, we're gonna build a wall, Mexico's gonna pay for it. They're coming, they're rapists. And the, there was a backlash to this and like they, Macy stopped carrying Trump ties, for example. Right? Mm. Um, And then people thought like, this is, you know, and then I think they sort of adopted him as as their guy at that Mm. point. And the mainstream conservatives and Fox News were sort of horrified by this guy and then the only people were who were like, you know, kissing up to him online were these were these white nationalists, these alt right types. Mm-hmm. And then he just didn't want to disavow them. He didn't want to distance himself from him because they were basically the ones kissing up to him. And he, he just got it. He just got the impression that this was his base and he just played to that. And then the and they liked it because of the immigration issue. But the personality plus the immigration issue actually played well among con, uh, the conservative base right and mm-hmm. i think that combination sort of pushed them to the nomination in the divided
1: field do you think that's right i do think that's right um, you know i'm you know some people will say that the alt right was important in the election outcome i'm not entirely sure that that's true um, you know because you know who knows maybe actually hillary's speech was effective in in pushing down some of his support from some of you know more uh, you know quote unquote respectable elements of society. Um, but it obviously didn't hurt him enough to to make the difference. Uh, and if it did help, it helped him in the right places um, where, where the votes mattered. I think, you know, Trump's poor showing in Utah was okay, because he still, you know, managed to carry it. Um, but, you know, winning among uh, more downscale voters in Michigan was, was much more important.
0: Yeah, so I mean, so Trump, I mean, but Trump, so Trump wins the election. And I think that I think what was most important is sort of there was this convergence at the time, too, I think, on the immigration issue between like these sort of alt-right and these fringe figures and some people on, you know, people who would still get on Fox News. So I think Ann Coulter's arguments were huge. I think there was this idea and, and we can't leave out sort of what the left is doing at this time. So I, the, I remember the rhetoric surrounding the Obama coalition. And they were saying basically that the country is changing demographically. Basically, um, you know, the Republicans can't win anymore because the country's becoming less white. And there was a part of the Republican Party that said, okay, we have to adjust to this uh, new reality, right? This was the autopsy from, uh, was it 2012? Mm-hmm. Um, and then there were other people like Ann Coulter and and, and mainly Ann Coulter who wrote a book just saying uh, immigration was the only issue and that conservatives should just focus on that to the exclusion of everyone else who took the opposite track and said, no, we just should just shut down the border and we should increase the white vote. And this was, and this sort of became the intellectual sort of veneer of Trumpism. They couldn't, you know, there wasn't a, um, you know, they couldn't openly say, you know, they couldn't openly identify with the alt-right reasons for wanting to restrict immigration, but they could with, they could say, well, you know, um, in, in conservative publications, you would hear stuff like, oh, it's bad for the Republican Party. And then, he, you know, you I think you would reverse engineer these things like, oh, it's about jobs. Uh, mm-hmm. It's about, you know, whatever. I mean, it is, economic anxiety
1: became the, uh, the, 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 the common theme explaining Trumpism, which, you know, as as more and more empirical evidence comes in, that just is increasingly implausible.
0: Yeah. And, you know, we're having this conversation about sort of the motivations of Trumpism. And I think the way you and I understand this issue and the way we're having this conversation um, would not be the way most people, some, most people would understand it. I think most people, you know, I listen to just uh, consume a wide breadth of media. And so everyone from like the populist right to sort of uh, these sort of like uh, mainstream conservative figures like Ross do that. And then even I hear people who are sort of, you know, people like Sam Harris and others who attribute it to trade or, you know, or uh, increasing income inequality. Um, And you and I, um, you know, our our paper, our first report for CSPI was sort of just trying to take this apart because we think that's a bad argument. Um, If if you're going to summarize why that is a bad argument or why, you know, understanding why should we, why should we be understanding this as sort of a question of ideology and sort of instinct and prejudices, you know, at at the sophisticated level, there's ideology there, even though the uh, white racialists, they had, you know, they would have uh, uh, tracts about all these reasons that a racially diverse society was no good. And then you have regular people who sort of have this instinct, they just have this prejudice. And so, and so we understand it sort of this way where it's like it's, it's either ideas or it's moral values or it's so, or, or just instinct or prejudice or something like that. And economics has played no role in our discussion, while I think a lot of mainstream discourse about what's, uh, what Trumpism was about what sort of center economics. Um, how, do, how do we justify sort of taking a different position there?
1: Well, I think we both come from the uh, tradition within the the study of political behavior that, you know, it's very rooted in the connection between uh, political behavior and ideology and partisanship with social identity, um, combined with, of course, the the early research by people like Philip Converse and others showing that, you know, ideology is, is actually fairly rare in the electorate. There are plenty of people who call themselves conservatives and liberals but the sense of actually having what are called ideological constraints is extraordinarily uncommon um, of having this uh, this coherent worldview about politics is, is really not the norm. Um, and this is where things get confused at the elite level because I think a lot of people who are you know do politics professionally think that they are normal and not weird. Um, most people's, uh, you know, though political attitudes, um, you know, uh, affiliations with parties or with candidates is, is a bit more primal than that. Yeah. Um, not based on, it's certainly not based on uh, uh, trade policy.
0: Sure. And it's not even, I mean, and there's these, uh, this other idea that you're, you have this, uh, these economic problems, you have this income inequality and it can be challenged and channeled into many different things. Right, so there's there's sort of this idea that it just creates anger, and then people, be, you know, become angry, and maybe they become uh, sort of uh, 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 prone to get swept away in racism or or prejudice or something like that. You know, I don't see much evidence for this. I think I think a good reason, a good uh, a good uh, sort of um, indication of this, if we look globally, uh, Eastern Europe, for example, has seen a rise in populism, and their economy has been doing very well, just getting well. Uh, just getting wealthier and wealthier. You know, the idea that, and they've had this sort of uh, the strongest right-wing movement in the Western world. Um, I, You know, this idea that people can perceive whether the rich people are making a hundred times as much income as the poor people or a thousand times or a million times. This just strikes me as implausible. It's, it, it just, it just strikes me that like like I don't know. Like I don't know. Like I live in California. I don't know if the richest people in California make ten times more than hundred more. Maybe there's some way like you sort of sense it, but like I don't see them driving down the street and they're like limousines or anything like that. So I don't know exactly how I would perceive this. So I just have always I don't think that it's empirically supported this idea of income inequality being important, but I just find it um, sort of uh, sort of uh, not, just not plausible at a theoretical level. Do Do you feel the same way or do you have a different? View? Yeah.
1: Yeah. No. I would say that uh, you know income inequality as such being a problem, uh, it's uh, it's, it's hard to believe that that is what's driving people's uh, politics. Um, You know, people will be sensitive to the health of the overall economy. They'll be sensitive to how their own uh, economic prospects are looking. But um, does anybody get up in arms because uh, Jeff Bezos made X amount of dollars last year? Um, I mean, if everybody else is doing, if they are personally doing worse, they might become more angry at billionaires, but I don't think that, but that's, I think that's more a function of their own economic prospects going downward, not necessarily, you know, the, that they're making the connection between you know, their own economic prospects and those of the 1%. I mean, obviously you will find ideologues, especially on the left who will make this argument over and over again about, you know, the evils of plutocracy, but I'm not convinced that is a, uh, something that is fundamentally driving uh, votes out in the electorate. Yeah, you mentioned Bezos. I mean,
0: are people mad at Bezos? I mean, if you go on Twitter, yeah, like everyone is like the left and, and sort of the right, like sort of just will bash these tech, uh, tech uh, billionaires. And then you look at polling, like of Amazon and Google, and how and people love, people love these things. I mean, I was looking at a, uh, a, a so they they check people's favorite apps, they're the apps that they're happiest using, um, and that they're you know they have the highest approval rating for. And out of the top ten, like three were Amazon, right? There was Amazon Prime, there was Ama, there was a Kindle, and there was Audible, right? Three, not even real, that's not even including Amazon's the main Amazon business, which is shipping, shipping things to people, right? Mm -hmm. So people really love Amazon. They really love Google. I think, you know, there was anger at like the bankers because people don't really understand what bankers do. So when in, you know, besides, you know, like, run the, you know, give you money or, or hold your money or, write, or uh, print your checks. And so in 2009, um, when they were doing all these bailouts, I think there was genuine anger at that, right? Um, and it was about not just about them getting richer. It was actually the government giving money to these people. We have no idea what they're doing. When government gave money to um, the automobile industry, there was no Tea Party movement in response. It wasn't as much money. But I think the more important thing is like the automobile companies are sort of like Amazon. People sort of get that they're making something. And maybe the bankers do provide value, I'm not, I'm not saying they don't, some, some parts of banking obviously do, but it's the perception, right? People don't perceive them as doing something that actually helps the economy. Um, and they do see these sort of other corporations doing it. And I think, yeah, if people see money as sort of fairly gotten or gotten in a fair system or actually producing something, yeah, the, Bernie Sanders is angry and you know, uh, populists on the right might also be angry, but it doesn't seem to resonate as well as some of these other things.
1: Well, I think that the 2008 crisis was a bit unique, and that people were angry not just that the government was giving money to the banks, but they also viewed the banks as being the catalyst, oh, yes, yes, for the uh, for the problem. And then, as everyone else was uh, going under, the banks were getting their bailout. So, I think that 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 was a, you know, I, nobody thought that the the economy was crashing because of Detroit, right? Because of uh, the automakers, but people thought that the bankers were responsible so I think that that made that made that particular populist moment uh, qualitatively different from from some of these others no one though is saying that our current economic doldrums are caused by Amazon in fact you know
0: oh, some people, most do. people I, don't,
1: I don't think yeah I don't
0: think they're very smart but they, I don't think it's no. a smart argument but people do <laughs> say that
1: I mean, people can have legitimate criticisms for, you know, uh, Amazon's practices in terms of how it's dealing with its workers. But I think the overwhelming majority of Americans would say that their life was made better this past year because of access to Amazon. I mean, just uh, look, I'm not going to, you know, you know, sing all the praises of Jeff Bezos. But really, Amazon is a pretty remarkable achievement in terms of logistics in a year in which, you know, government has not exactly been uh Particularly remarkable in that regard. Yeah,
0: yeah, uh, yeah. There's a there's an account on Twitter called Public Citizen. I don't know exactly what it is, but it seems to be a left wing account and has a lot of followers and has a blue check mark. And one thing they tweeted was like, "Here's all the billionaires and how much they, money they made during the pandemic." And like Sanders also tweeted something similar. And it's like, can you imagine a world where Amazon didn't make money during the pandemic? like that would, that would have been a terrible, terrible world because that means we wouldn't have been able to get anything. And I guess we would have all been outside spreading the, the virus to each other. I mean, it's, I, to me, it's a clear example of, of providing value to society in a world where, yeah, like you said, the government failed, uh, the government failed pretty terribly. So, yeah, so I guess we can, I mean, I guess we can table that uh, economic, I mean, it's a bit, but more directly, like, it's not just our intuitions. I mean, you, the, the idea going back political science decades, of, uh, that's going back findings of decades is if I know something about your checkbook, if I could do an audit of George Howley's finances and see how much he made last year and what he spent his money on, how much, d- d- uh, loan debt he had and his mortgage and this and that, I can't predict almost anything about your politics, right? Mm-hmm. I sit down two minutes with you and like, crack a sexist joke and see if you laugh or get horrified. <laughs> Nobody's done this experiment. I mean, they, they pull people on your like social attitudes. That's a much better predictor of how you vote, right? And I know something about your race and your religion and that stuff too. That stuff also works, right?
1: Yeah, that's right. That's um, if you have these, these other characteristics are much stronger predictors of where you're going to be ideologically than the amount of money in your bank account. I mean, that matters, but it, it gets swamped. In yeah, uh, yeah. in quantitative models, um, its its substantive importance will be much less significant. Knowing that somebody is a uh, you know a white evangelical Christian is much is a much stronger predictor than knowing that somebody made uh, one hundred and twenty thousand dollars last year.
0: Yeah, and when you say much stronger predictor, I mean you're I think you're understating it. People can go look at our uh, our report and we have some graphs that'll give you sort of an apples to apples comparison, how uh, sort of these demographic characteristics do or these social attitudes do compared to uh, to sort of ec- to economics, things like income. Um, so yeah, so Trump gets so Trump gets elected. And you know, you and I both believe it's 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 not much an economic story. It's I mean everything is economic. You have to give that you, you know, something as broad as the economy, you have to sort of uh you have to sort of give that caveat, right? But in the grand scheme of things, it's not as important as sort of these social forces that are underneath. And he he has this energy, he has these enthusiastic supporters. And I think you're it's an interesting question whether they mattered for his election. I when he came out and he said that thing about uh, Mexico's not sending. Their best, and he didn't. Um, he didn't apologize or anything, right? Uh, and then, like Rush Limbaugh, who I don't think knows anything about the alt-right or internet subculture, he's just a, a ra- an old radio guy was saying this is the greatest thing ever. Finally, someone like stood up to the left and didn't buckle to the PC to, to PC mobs, right? Um, and I think there was a just a, a sort of a, an instinct with the conservatives that they just wanted somebody to troll the left the hardest, and that just happened to be Trump. And if these like the top 10 most influential alt-right people just disappeared in 2016. Like, yeah, I, I wonder if it would have mattered. I mean, I'm not
1: sure it would have. Like, do, do you feel the same way? I do, and um, and I think this is also where I think um, both, the, both the left and the alt-right, I think uh, sort of uh, misread what that meant, right? I think that, uh, you know, the alt-right saw that Trump was, you know, rejecting, every norm um, when it comes to discourse on race and immigration and uh, gender, et cetera. And thought, and the fact that the, you know, your typical Republican voter was, you know, cheering him on, that they inferred from that, that, oh, the, the American people is, are actually on our side, that they are also, you know, right, uh, far right ideologues. Um, and the left said the same thing, like, oh, look, we have clear evidence here that, uh, you know, Just like we've said all along republicans are all incipient fascists fascists but you know the truth is you know they liked him attacking pc without necessarily having like a a really strong ideology that was in opposition to that that is the fact that they rejected you know so-called wokeness when it comes to discourse didn't mean that they wanted to uh create the white ethno state um so I think that there was uh, some some misreading of the results on uh, the left and the right, um, where people were, were seeing more than they were really seeing in terms of what the rejection of political correctness among uh, Republican voters really meant.
0: Yeah, and I mean, the, the, the people mislead themselves. I mean, I think because it's easy to look at issue polling and it, it often contradicts, it. you know, it often contradicts uh, Certain questions often contradict other questions, um, just based on how you how you word it or exactly what information you put in there. So, on the immigration issue, for example, uh, I think a lot of people on the right were saying, "Look, if you ask people, do you want more, or less, uh, or less immigration?" Most people would say we want less. Although that public opinion appears to have changed during the Trump era, but that was that was the state of public opinion around 2016. Um, but then, if you say, "Do you uh, accept a pathway to citizenship for people who were?" who came here as a young age blah 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 and you put like these other things in there like yeah yeah that public opinion even republican uh, opinion will be uh in favor of quote-unquote amnesty it won't play well with the activist base so they'll be angry they'll they will they stopped uh bush working with the democrats to try to pass a, a pathway to citizenship right but the public opinion is sort of is sort of mushy on these things they they like the idea of fighting back against pc that's the one thing that's like that, that was the core of the Republican uh sort of uh uh intuitive uh sort of uh a, a liking for Trump, this sort of connection that they felt. It was he's just these people bully us, uh they they're unfair, they don't like us very much. Um and we're and this guy is attacking them back and he's also, you know, he's he's sort of on our side. And he could have done, you know, he could have his policy could be all over the place. Uh, you know, there was there it was it was like both Trump and the Republican Party before Trump were sort of fooling themselves because the republican party before trump had i think convinced themselves that trump would go away because uh, he wasn't a real conservative. So as soon as they pointed out to the voters that he, um, you know, he, he, I guess, you know, he didn't believe in the principle of, you know, free market principles, and he wasn't about small government, like they would just turn away from him. And that wasn't true. But then also people uh, who were supporters of Trump, sort of more populist Republicans, thought that, oh, they rejected, you know, the, the Paul Ryan agenda, and they wanted someone who would talk about trade and would talk about these things. And that's why they went to Trump, right? And both of these, Sides are wrong. They just wanted someone to troll the left. And, you know, whatever his trade policy was, they don't care. They As long as they had that connection, they would go with it, right?
1: I'll agree with that. And um, just to return to something you, you said a moment ago um, immigration is definitely one of those issues where you can find polling that will be all over the place. This is a question that is very sensitive to question wording, right? Um, you know, you can describe amnesty in different words and people will be, there'll be large majorities in favor of it. But if you say, do you support amnesty? You'll see the reverse. It's uh, this is one where sort of the, uh, the question wording is, is everything. Um, but uh, to your broader question, um, I, I totally agree with you about uh, people trying to make big uh, inferences about where the public is. Based on on Trump, um, and this is where I think I sort of got things wrong a little bit too. I mean, I th- something I had been hitting on for a while was that you know your typical American does not care about conservative principles as such. Um, but I, I I will admit that I thought that there was something that that Trumpism had some substance to it when it comes to what uh, what his voters wanted from him, and. Over the past four years, I've, I've, I've come to question that. That is that you know, Trumpism now has almost no substance to it. It's, it's just, it's, all it is is Trump, as opposed to any you know, coherent ideology or philosophy that, you know, that was motivating the people who say were out on the streets a couple of days ago. Like, I don't think they were motivated by trade or by immigration policy or by any of these other things.
0: Yeah, I mean, so we can, I guess. Yeah, that that is a great segue into just talking about the events of the last few days. So uh, it was funny because 2016 and 2020, these the most diehard Trump supporters to me don't really resemble uh, don't really resemble each other all that much, and it's it's sort of not remarkable. And both 2016, right when he got election, when he got elected, and now 2020 in the aftermath election are both. Full of social media controversies about social media starting to ban people. So I mean, we should just go. I mean, so social media started banning the alt right in uh, 2016. And the aftermath of Trump's election, they really came down hard on them. Um, and these were, you know, like the people who are white nationalists, who are sexists, who are trolling journalists and all this stuff. And now they're banning Trump supporters um, for, you know, saying Mike Pence is about to be executed and the world is run by satanic pedophiles and you know, talking about vote fraud. And you're right, it's absolutely ideologically f- free, but uh, while the earlier, you know, the earlier iteration of this was ideological, but it looks the same on the surface because there's these people who the media and the establishment and the Republican establishment, and Democratic establishment don't like and are trying to cancel. Right, and social media is sort of the nexus where this battle is happening. But the things that they're canceling them for have nothing to do with the things they were canceling them for four years ago. Right?
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting. Like the uh, it seems like most of the uh, the canceling is not because of you know people being you know racist uh, per se. It's usually because of uh, you know saying totally outrageous things about you know democratic conspiracies about, uh, you know, stolen votes um, and, uh, you know, obviously whipping up, uh, you know, potential violence among people about, about these, about these issues. I mean, uh, you know, Lynn Wood, I, I don't even, like, there's not a lot of ideology behind his, his, his madness on, on Twitter. He's, he's the one you're talking about, who was talking about, you uh, um, Pence is about to the get the forthcoming execution of, of Mike Pence, which was sort of a <laughs> throwaway line he put out, which seems like it would have it, it warranted more uh you know more detail than he provided.
0: Yeah, yeah yeah this person is insane. I would say go look at his Twitter account but we're talking on January 8th Friday night and he just got banned from Twitter just in the last day or so he General Michael Flynn, um, Sidney Powell, Trump's, you know, the craziest of Trump's lawyers, uh, and uh, the Aitkun's guy, uh, Ron Watkins is his name. And if you don't know what uh, Aitkun is, you know, you're, you're, you're probably lucky. Um, and so these people were just banned, and Trump just got banned um, permanently. Uh, just before we came on within the last, within the last hour or two. Um, And yeah, I mean, Lidwood (laughs) Lidwood the other day was saying Jeffrey Epstein is alive and he's going to expose John Roberts for, uh, uh, he's going to expose John Roberts for his pedophilia. I mean, just the craziest nonsense. You know, there was, you talk about right-wing critics of American conservatism, there's, you know, Alex Jones. And occasionally just out of like a morbid curiosity, I'd listen to him. And he sounded like the craziest person in the world in 2016. And you turn him on in 2020. And he's like, like the, the people that Trump is retweeting, Alex Jones is saying, no, no, they're exaggerating. <laughs> they're going too far. <laughs> it's like Alex Jones has become sort of the sane centrist of where they are. And it's not, and these people are like, you know, they're not nobodies. They're the people that the president is promoting and retweeting and leading his effort to overturn the election. So we've just gotten to a point that's just, insane it's 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 not something i would have expected for i thought we'd go on a straight line maybe like things got racist and they'll get more racist maybe like something like that but it's not like you're more or less racist or more or less you know white identity politics it's just degenerate degenerated into insanity right
1: yeah i mean if we think about 2016 i mean there were identifiable coherent factions on the right you know you had the sort of the jeb bush republican establishment you had sort of the alt-right white nationalists who were trying to, to drag Trumpism in their direction. And then you had sort of the more generic, less defined right-wing populism of Trump. And then you had I, people who I think were sort of cynically, you know, on the sidelines uh, trying to, you know, manipulate things to their advantage. I would say Bannon was was someone like that who who simultaneously wanted to, you know, ride sort of the alt-right's energy, but also you know, maintain a little bit of distance from its more radical, uh, elements. Um, but, you know, you can sort of put people in different ideological boxes and make sense of them right now. When I look at, you know, the insanity in DC from a few days ago, like there's not really much coherence to it. Like if I'm trying to describe the ideology of the, of, you know, the Viking guy, uh, in the capital. Like yeah. I, I have no idea. Like if, if he was in charge of policy, what would he do? I don't know. No idea.
0: Yeah. And I um I, you know, I pointed out on, on Twitter the other day that other movements tend to have symbols that you could point to. So the Tea Party, for example, it had, you know, the, the don't tread on me flag. Um and it had, you know, to hold up the Constitution and they would dress like founding fathers. Um, you know these these anarchists, Black Lives Matter. They have their own symbol related to what they actually believe in. And I was looking at the pictures of the Trump rally, and it's literally ju- it's just Trump. And so they have they have the name Trump on their chest, you know, on their hat, on the, on their back. And There's just the American flag, and there's and there's Trump, and you know, I mentioned, well, they, they would occasionally have the Blue Lives Matter flag. So there's this law and order aspect to Trumpism. Someone's like, oh, look what they're doing to the law, to the Blue Lives Matter flag. They're stomping on it in Burdigan because now suddenly, they, you know, they hate the cops because the cops are preventing them from going into the Capitol and or not preventing them very well, but, you know, not, but being in their way when they're going into the Capitol and trying to, you know, ransack the place. Uh, so, you know, it's, they don't even, you know, it's not even that. And, uh, you know, the uh, I, I think it's, it's not just the last few days. I think there's been a general, so there's sort of a surface Trumpism and then there's the Trumpism of the government. So when you look at the people who he appointed uh, like Betsy DeVos in education, Right, just a, a, the person who takes the conservative line on education—that uh, charter schools are good, uh, religious freedom is good. Uh, this stuff. Jeff Sessions, I mean, ideologically, probably like the closest to sort of that 2016 ideology. He was appointed, but then, uh, then uh, when he left, there was a more uh, mainstream Republican establishment kind of guy, Bill Barr, who focused on you know religious freedom, rolled back the consent decrees that Obama was doing with regards to uh, um, with regards to local police departments. Um, uh, not being so aggressive on civil rights, uh, civil rights enforcement, sort of being national ha- uh, security hawkish, uh, trying to extradite, extradite uh, Julian Assange. You know, surface Trumpism, like. People who like Trump on social media and Trump himself will say sort of nice things about WikiLeaks, but, uh, but um, when it came to policy, they were, you know, they tried to get them extradited, you know, harder than Obama did and they actually succeeded while Obama, I, there was more ambivalence about doing so about the free speech implications of this uh, during the Obama administration. Foreign policy, the same thing. I mean, you know, the, I think the, this one really gnaws at me when people say there's really a big difference between Trump and previous Republicans. It's just been sort of pedal to the middle in Iran, more military spending. Uh, so there's that. And, you know, you said, oh, there's challenges to right-wing, uh, to sort of conservative. I think it's like there was a, the, um, traditional sort of Reaganism. It seems to have, to, to have really triumphed in, in style. I mean, in substance, but not in style. And the style of Trumpism was, you know, uh, sort of, uh, white nationalism, law and order, uh, um, uh, resistance to PC in 2016 and 2020. It's just whatever whatever this man says. So if he wakes up and says the election was stolen, or um, you know, if he wakes up and says now I'm going to push criminal justice reform, I think we've. Been, I you know, I remember the uh, the ca- the um, the uh, uh, convention, the RNC in uh, uh, 2020, and. Half of it was like law and order. And, you know, the Democrats are going to let the, co- they let the uh, criminals run wild. And the other half of it was Biden is a racist because um, he once supported a, a tough on crime bill. And there was no realization that these messages sort of conflicted. And I think that in 2016, if Trump started pushing criminal justice reform, those people he was paying attention to on Twitter, the, the Pepe meme people and the others, they would have said, wait a minute, you know, we, you know we're, not, we're not with this. And if it like, so that's, they're sort of, that was sort of a normal ideological movement. And if Joe Biden had come and accused Trump of being uh, too soft on crime and said, I'm the, t- I'm the one who's tough on crime, he would have had pushback from his base because his base believed the criminal justice system is racist, and uh, we need to be we need to be we need to be moving away from mass incarceration. So they believed in something. The sort of alt right believed in something, but 2020 the, the, there's not there's nothing but where Trump says I, I I feel like it it's something new in American politics. There was a sort of a I guess there was these these cultists. Um, like a, the LaRouche movement, I think is sort of the story. I don't know much about them, but but people say they're like sort of cultish, um, but they haven't been successful. None of, nothing like this has achieved the presidency. Uh, do you see, I mean, do you see a sort of equivalence to this sort of kind of ideologically free movement in at the top levels of American
1: politics in the last few decades, or am I right that this is something new? Well, I mean, you've, you've mentioned a couple of things there. Um, That I can respond to. Uh, One thing that you noted is that, in a way, sort of Reaganism was triumphant during the Trump years. And this is where um, I've come to my views have sort of evolved a little bit. Um, You know, um, I thought that sort of where the public was, you know, had more of an impact on actual policy than it did. And it turns out, you know, institutions and money and experience. Matter when it comes to governing. And in a sense, you know, Trumpism followed a very different trajectory than conservatism as we know it. Now, if we think about sort of the the long-term history of the mainstream conservative movement, it had a sort of a step-by-step process culminating in Reagan or maybe in, you know, the Gingrich Revolution, starting out as a, you know, these disparate, you know, ideological currents that finally managed to get tied together, thanks to people like Frank Meyer and others at National Review. You start having grassroots organizations that are, you know, debating, you know, what exactly is the the coherence to this that we're pushing, the, uh, you know, draft Goldwater movement that ends with Goldwater being uh, the nominal losing, but then that leads to, you know, new fundraising enterprises, the creation of the Heritage Foundation. the bringing religious right. And then finally you have this, and of course, all of the, the racial undercurrents going around at the same time that is bringing white Southerners and then uh, sort of white ethnics in the North into the Republican coalition. Then it culminates in sort of the Reagan revolution. And by the time Reagan is in office, there is this massive infrastructure throughout the government and sort of in the media all pushing a sort of a coherent conservative agenda that he you know more or less was able to to promote during his presidency. Trump just got you know his right-wing populist vision was you know it secured the presidency and had none of those things behind it. So he gets into the oval office and he's not going to start filling his cabinet with you know people who had previously just been you know Uh, anonymous, you know, Pepe's on Twitter, (laughs) he has to bring in people who have governing experience, which means bringing in almost exclusively conventional Republicans who have no interest in changing the ideology. And then of course, when it comes to domestic policy, outsourced almost everything to Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell. And so in substance, you know, the Trump years were not that different from what you'd expect from uh, any of the other Republican candidates who were running in 2016, even if I, Trump himself might have wanted it to be different, there just wasn't the infrastructure in place for a, a real revolutionary change in how the government was going to function during that period. So in a sense, that you could say that right-wing populism, um, if that's what we want to call Trumpism, in a sense, uh, secure the presidency before really having the means of implementing a, a really revolutionary or disruptive agenda.
0: Yeah, and I, th- I think that's right. But I think at the same time, he could, if he was, it wasn't just a matter of there was nobody out there with government experience who shared his ideology. I think there was talk in the early days of the administration of finding the people who were sort of more aligned with what he was talking about during the 2016 campaign and bringing them into the government. So for example, Sessions was one of these people, the mm-hmm. people talked about Chris Kobach uh, potentially getting a cabinet appointment. Now Kobach, for those who don't know, is a politician from uh, Kansas. He was a secretary of state in Kansas. He ran for uh, governor and lost. He um, He's just known as an immigration hawk, just a guy who really focused on immigration and Coulter loved him. And um, he was a, uh, Uh, He, people were talking about giving him a, he would have fit in with what Trump wanted to do if he wanted to, and you know, he's, he's somebody who has experience in government at the state level. Um, There was talk of like, even like Tulsi Gabbard a secretary of defense, right? I mean, that's a, that is sort of a stretch but if you wanted someone who sort of talked in the way Trump talked about foreign policy during 2016 that would have actually been a good fit, right? Um, So there could have been there, it's not like nobody existed who could have implemented Trump's ideology. It was more like he just didn't. He just didn't care. Um, mm-hmm. And so picking Pence as the vice president. So Pence had been in uh, a long time congressman. He had been one of the top Republicans in Congress. And so that was sort of the marriage between, I think Trump and the Republican party. And then so Pence was like the generic Republican Paul Ryan agenda. That's the guy who you would take to sort of just be somebody in the room. He could have gone with a more unconventional pick like Gingrich, even though Gingrich was also a head of Republican Party, he became more of a fringe figure later um, and sort of always had an independent streak or Chris Christie people were talking about. People say Chris Christie actually became, uh, you know, that alternate history is fasc- <laughs> it's fascinating to contemplate. But he went with the safe pick. He went with okay you know the republican establishment needs you know wants sort of some adult supervision okay i'll do that and then he uh and then pence takes over a lot of the staffing and then when he appoints judges he just outsources it to mcconnell and he just picks from the heritage foundation list that um anyone else would have picked and i guess it's things just sort of drifted because he cared so little about policy look i was I say one thing I was wrong about Trump is I never thought you know he was like you know super uh, this you know this great genius or anything but I thought he would have enough interest in governing to actually do things to actually want to do things and it wouldn't just be whatever popped into his head he would say and that would be the policy so the covid response you know, was absolutely fascinating. They were going out finding a doctor, Scott Atlas. They brought in this doctor because Trump had, or somebody around Trump had seen him on TV. And this was the guy who would tell him what he wanted to hear. And he'd bring this guy in. And this guy is basically, you know, important uh, running running the response to COVID. And he's just, he's just crazy. He just wants everyone to, I mean, he just wants the uh, herd immunity. He's against testing. I mean, just really, really bad policy. Um, and so it just sort of drifts where it becomes, you know, he it, it's it's he started out. You know, maybe caring a little bit. Maybe like he he like Bannon was there, and Bannon was the influence in saying do all these executive orders on immigration and pull out. He pulls out a TPP. He does the Muslim ban that they get struck down, but then gets uh, held up when they when they redo it. And so maybe there was a part of him in like 2017 when he comes into office who wants to sort of cash in and uh, sort of do these things that uh, he ran on. Um, and he tries to do things like become better friends with Russia. Um, he, you know, he does have these conversations with Putin. This is this is probably this is not what the Republican Party wants. This isn't the easiest political path. This isn't the political path of res- least resistance. But he does do these things. He, he, you know, tries. His White House actually lobbies against sanctions on Russia. And over the years, there's just less and less of that sort of putting your neck out there or doing something different from what the Republican Party does. And all he starts to demand of the Republican Party is you guys back me up when I say there's voter fraud. And he just sort of outsources the policy to them. And by the end of it, he just—I mean, there's there's not even a there's not even a platform in the twenty twenty the twenty twenty convention. They didn't even bother with the platform. They they recopied the twenty sixteen platform, and it's funny because parts of it were like talking about the current president, which was Obama, and saying we need to get away from you know the current president. So it just, it just they just they just copy and pasted the twenty sixteen uh, uh the uh the the platform from uh from uh twenty from twenty sixteen, and you know the 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 like the you know he almost won and the. I'm struck by how little like agenda there was as far as what he would do in the second administration like could you imagine what a second administration had been like what what go- I mean it just would have been it just would have been one crisis after the after another wouldn't it I really didn't see much of you know even in theory, sort of a vision to move towards, it just sort of became this one man and his obsessions, and he was um, becoming unmoored from the conservative movement, while the conservative movement sort of had the substance, but stylistically, or vision, or leadership, there was just absolutely nothing there at the end.
1: Yeah, fair enough. Um, I guess, uh, yeah, I mean, we mentioned the response to COVID, and I think that to watch as well because it seems like covid you know handled differently could have been sort of a boon to a right-wing populist movement right because it yeah, seems to ways to uh, yeah it seems like it, it it uh backs up a lot of that vision of the world like oh look you know this is proof that people can move around the globe too easily this yeah. is proof yeah. that we don't produce yeah. enough at home um, we need to, you know, bring back manufacturing to the United States and have more control over who's entering the country. But that's not the message that was uh, that was promoted um, via the Trump administration. It was, it was uh, I mean, yes, there was some, in my view, uh, foolish sort of anti-Chinese, you know, I would call racism um, that was used to try to deflect, you know, blame, but, you know, in terms of, you know, moving towards something, you know, policy-wise that was substantive and in line with sort of the 2016 vision, there really wasn't any of that. It was more, let's let's hope this thing goes away on its own and we don't spook the markets too much. And then it, we end up with a, a giant disaster a couple of months later.
0: Yeah, so... Um... Yeah, so yeah, I think we're, we're in agreement and sort of where the Trump administration had gone and what it would have been. I, I was actually sort of scared that the China hawks could take it, had been taken over things completely And that basically you know it's just sort of this uh this sort of just uh, reflexive just sort of anti-china policy would have been um would have been the next 4 years and possibly war with iran i think that every day stays there is, gets us closer to that but um yeah we'll 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 never know um so like okay so i would look into the future i mean you had this um you had the you, two days ago. You had them rush the Capitol. Uh, five five people, I think, died. I think that's the death count now, including one uh, Capitol Hill police officer. Three Trump supporters died of their own health problems. So they they got excited and they had pre-existing conditions and they and the, and they died. And then the uh, the. The one that everyone's talking about is the, the lady who got shot by uh, by law enforcement while they were trying to break in uh, this area where these congressmen, I think where Mike Pence was. Um, and so it seems like, it seems like the, the, I mean, it seems like we've come full circle in the, you know, the alt-right was killed by, by censorship. You know, you, you wrote about 2017. I don't think it exists anymore. I think the, you know, when they, when the media, brought the hammer when the social media companies in particular brought the hammer down these people didn't have platforms anymore and some people say oh it's going to make you it's going to make them stronger it's going to make them more dangerous go underground no every single person who was kicked off of uh, twitter and facebook like Gavin McGinnis, even though these aren't like alt right people, like the quote unquote alt right, um, who are sort of edgy but not, you know, open white nationalists. People like Milo, uh, Gavin, and then somebody like Alex Jones. Um, these people were kicked off, and they're much less influential, much less powerful than they um, than they are now. To the extent that they have basically uh, no impact on the um, on the discussion or policy or or anything else. Um, and so, you know, the, you know, there's a reason that every dictatorship in history has censored uh, opinions it doesn't like because censorship works. If censorship always comes back, why would, why would every dictator and every, every regime in history try to, try to ban people from speaking? Um, and it seems like 2020 where we've come full circle and now they're just going to ban Trump and they banned the most, uh, the most strident uh, Trump supporters um, and people pushing QAnon, people pushing the election fraud narrative. And I wonder where this is going. Are they just gonna end up like the alt-right where Trump just disappears and he's doing, uh, um, he's doing sort of um, live video chats on like Newsmax website and nobody pays attention to him and that's it? Or is there, is there, gonna, be, um, is there gonna be a second act for Trump
1: in American, in American life? Yeah, you know, it's you know I can't claim a crystal ball on this, but I will go ahead and say that you I 100% agree with you on the effectiveness of censorship. This is something I um, I didn't realize how dramatic it would be when I was writing about the alt right back in 2016. Um, then of course I couldn't have known just uh, you know just how extreme the deplatforming would become you know, by the end of 2017, where it wasn't just people were getting kicked off of Twitter for violating, you know, uh, the, the norms of that site, but people were even being, you know, in one case was a site was basically kicked off the internet entirely, which is fairly unprecedented for a, for a political site. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, payment processors no longer working, um, things like that were unquestionably devastating to the alt-right. Now, could the same thing happen to Trump? Trump might be an exception here. People might follow him. His followers might follow him to Parler. Like Trump might, you know, people might migrate to another website for the sake of Trump in the way that people wouldn't go to Gab because they wanted to. Although, did you hear
0: the news about Parler? Apple is. Uh, this just was another headline that just uh, uh, popped up in my news alert. That Parler, uh, Apple is threatening Parler over what happened Wednesday to take them out of the out of the Apple Store.
1: Ah, well, then perhaps that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. This <laughs> is brand new to me. I didn't know that. So uh, that that could be. Um, I, I still think that Trump, if Trump wants an audience, I think he'll be able to have it. Um, I think that though, you know, losing Twitter would be, would be devastating to his future, uh, future prospects. I, if I were to guess right now, I don't think he has a viable shot at the 2024 election, um, regardless of what happens in the next couple of, couple of weeks. Um, but I, I, think that he, if he wants it, there will always be an audience for him.
0: Yeah, I was sort of, um. I, I, I was actually more uh, optimistic about his chances in twenty twenty four before, um, before this sort of last round of uh, censorship and before the craziness of the Capitol Hill, which I think is going to uh, Capitol Hill, which I think is going to be too much even for a lot of Republicans. My view was he won in twenty sixteen because it was a divided field, and he had you know 30 percent who loved him. Now that was before he was president and just had this cult following so if he did that in 2024 again and he had 25 to 30 percent and it doesn't and you know there's you know eight other candidates and nobody you know they sometimes it's the problem is there's no shelling point right there's no like in 2016 like the republican establishment had a collective action problem they wanted to stop trump they didn't like cruz uh, but there wasn't just like one person. They all said, "Okay, this is the person we're going to throw in with." This happened. This happened when in the Democrats, by contrast, in the last election, twenty twenty, it became so. Sanders won uh, uh, Nevada. Um, he uh, he won New Hampshire, and Biden wins South Carolina. And the Democratic Party realizes, okay, there's uh, there's only two plausible people now. There are Biden, or it's going to be Sanders, and they really didn't want Sanders. So the before Super Tuesday, Klobuchar and Buttigieg drop out. They endorse Biden, and so everyone who doesn't want Sanders, and that's most Democrat, that was most Democrats apparently. There were just blacks who are loyal to Biden, and then there were people who are centrist and people who um, who just listen to the establishment. The Democratic sort of base listens to the establishment in the way the Republican base doesn't. Um, They had somebody to. to um, coalesce around, right? It was Biden. It was Biden or Sanders that that was the binary choice. Um, tw- tw- the Republicans didn't have that in 2016, and they wouldn't have had that in, you know 2024 either. There's no superstar person who's just, you know, sort of the, the challenger to Trump. Everyone's you know, kissing up to Trump. Uh, but then, that being said, when they start banning trump from social media and they start banning his followers um and look fox news is not gonna <laughs> fox news is not gonna cater to this guy's every win they, they they didn't like him when they had other options back in 2016 they sort of fell in line um, when he was president like like things tend to, tend to go so i don't think he's gonna get a lot of coverage or a lot of support from uh fox either so he doesn't have social media um he doesn't even have supporters on social media he doesn't have um, he doesn't have Fox News. He, I mean, what's what the, what's left? He has he has direct mail. For, put aside his legal problem. I mean, if you've read about you know what sort of the criminal and civil cases that are coming down the line that that might occupy him, um, yeah, I, I I thought he was the favorite um, for twenty twenty four before the before Wednesday. Um, now, yeah, now I would be I would be surprised, um, it, you know, if if he's a viable candidate for for all kinds of reasons. Um, you know, one thing you can do with a cult of personality is you can uh, pass it on to the next generation. Um, so, you know that that's also that's also a possibility too, isn't it?
1: Well, I know you're very excited about the prospect of Josh Hawley being <laughs> the next
0: Trump. Yeah, Hawley I think is the only person who might have had as bad a week as uh, as Trump. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think I think Holly is yeah, Holly in trouble. Okay, I mean, th- this was fun. So, uh George, I mean, it was it was great speaking with you. Um where can people find you? You're not on, you're not on Twitter anymore, are you?
1: No, mercifully. Um uh, if you want to uh you know, see all of my my various op-eds and uh be able to get access to my books, you can find them at my website which is just www.georgehawley.com. and Holly is uh, H-A-W-L-E-Y.
0: Yeah, just like just like, just like the senator. And yeah, if you, Yeah. George is not going to give you hot takes on on Twitter. You're going to have to actually read a book or or download an academic article. So <laughs> we're glad that we're glad to have him here on the podcast. So uh, thank you, George. And thank you, everybody, for joining us. This has been the CSPI podcast and we'll see you next time.